Amen. Let's turn in our Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 6 as we're moving through this book of 1 Timothy and we've come to oh, about the middle of 1 Timothy chapter 6. Last week we saw what Paul had to warn Timothy about concerning the way of living your life trying to get more, hoping that somehow if you get enough stuff, it's going to satisfy you. And he attacks that way of life. He attacks that system of values and says that it will leave you with a lot of worthless stuff and it will leave you empty ultimately. And he mentions that getting too attached to money, loving money, is the root of all kinds of waste, of all kinds of evil. And a lot of people fall into a lot of traps because of their attraction to materialism. Now, it's easy to attack a way of life and Basically, in looking at what Paul lays out there, it kind of pretty much attacks the whole way that Western society lives and everything that we've been taught as far as how to, get, how to try to get happy is by getting more and accomplishing our goals. And, and so if you're going to attack something, you need to come up with an alternative. You need to come up with something that works better. And I think often... The church has not provided a real alternative to this materialistic way of life. And sometimes the Christians have appeared to just be another version of what the world is doing. Sometimes as obsessed with material things as people who don't follow Jesus are. And sometimes just still believing that God is just the one that's added into the equation to help you find success and, and riches and things like that. The truth is, it doesn't matter how you get it. It all, is always going to leave you short, but what we need is for God to tell us, okay, then what do we do? I can understand how, yeah, I'm trying to stay on that hamster wheel. I'm trying to get ahead. I'm working hard, thinking it's going to pay off. And okay, I, I, I'm buying into the idea that that's not going to work. So what does work? And it's, it's really important for us as, as believers in Jesus Christ to demonstrate that we've found something better. Because don't let go of something until you find a legitimate alternative makes sense. And so here, in beginning with verse 11, we see Paul outlining the Christian way of life as truly an alternative lifestyle. The way that God tells us to live is radically different than the way the world has been indoctrinating us in how to live. It's not coming to Jesus is not just making a minor adjustment to your system of values and the way you do things. It's a complete different adoption of a whole new set of values and a whole different way of doing things. Sometimes people have acted like, no, you know, you can just Achieve everything that you want to achieve for Jesus. There, People have written books that, that suggest that the best way to be successful in business is to do it his way, Jesus, CEO, and things like that. The truth is, when you read the way that the Bible tells you to live, it's going to cost you something business-wise. It isn't the way to get the richest the way to get the most successful. It's not just a little formula that helps. The truth is, 
When you do things God's way, it's going to cost a lot. There are a whole lot of times when you have to sacrifice what would make good business sense in order to do what God tells you to do. And along with that as well, to, to run the church as if it were a business. There are people who today want to run churches using good business principles. Well, you don't understand Christianity until you understand that this is night and day. This is a whole paradigm shift. This is a whole different way of doing things than the way the world says to do it. It's stepping out of that system of values and saying, now what do I do? What matters to me? What motivates me? Why do I do what I do? It's a completely different lifestyle. Truly the only legitimate alternative that, that I know of to doing things the way the world does it is to do it the way that, that God tells us to do it. And so here, beginning with verse 11, he starts to outline that because he already said, the way the world is doing it is destructive and it doesn't work and it'll never leave you satisfied. And you can learn that just from looking at the world. But he goes on and says, but you, verse 11, O man of God, O person who is following God, is doing things God's way, Flee these things. What things? The way they do it. The love of money. The belief that somehow if you get more, you're going to be satisfied. Flee these things and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, and gentleness. That's quite a list there, but that's what God says is, here's the outline of how life's supposed to work. Now, in each of these cases, these things may cost you a piece of success in the world's eyes. But each of these things ultimately will lead you to being satisfied, will lead you to discovering contentment. Now, that isn't to say that you can't do things God's way and also have a decent business model. Um, it's just that if you're going to run your business the way that God tells you to do it, it means that you're probably go not going to be as outrageously productive and successful as you might be otherwise. There are going to be decisions that cost you if you're going to do things his way. But let's look at this list of characteristics and see what the alternative lifestyle really is and then make some other observations about it. It starts with, and notice it's run away from the way the world is doing it that fruitless way of frustration. Get away from that. Run as far from that as you can. Get off that model completely. And here's what you should chase. Here's what you should pursue. See, the reason why people get caught up in the momentum of the world is that we are designed, built into us, is the need to pursue, is the need to accomplish is the need to grow, to achieve, to advance, to move forward. The problem isn't having a plan, setting goals, and striving to achieve those goals. That's something that God has built into us. The problem is, what are those goals? What is it that you're actually pursuing? And so he says, no, take what God has given you, that desire to pursue, and pursue this. The first thing is righteousness. That's a word that at its root means equity, being fair. It's a, it's a character trait of integrity. It, it's a life that, 
that says, I practice what I preach. I have a commitment to doing things right. Now, on the other hand, achieving success in the eyes of the world, you can't possibly do that if righteousness, if equity, if equality is your goal. Because see, all of success in life by the world's eyes comes by us being successful at someone else's expense. I love to get a good deal as much as anyone. But what I try not to think about is the fact that for me to get a really good deal means somebody else is probably getting a bad deal in order for that to happen. But this quality of righteousness is a quality that says my character is one of integrity. I'm not a phony. I really value everyone. I don't pick and choose. See, the other thing is, if you're trying to climb and struggle to get ahead and achieve things materially, you have to pick and choose. You have to have some prejudice because there are some people who can really help you on your path to success, and there are other people who will completely drain you and get in your way and hold you back. And so, by the world's eyes... What you need to do is to cater to those people. The Bible refers to it as being a respecter of persons over in James. You decide, hey, this person can help me, and so, boy, I better buddy up to them. This person, not so much, and I'll avoid them. But this word for righteousness means, no, everyone has value. Everyone has equal value, and I want to treat them that way. I want to have as much respect and and concern for someone who can't help me as, as one who can. And at its essence, that is integrity. That's living a life of consistency. And so that word for righteousness is referring to a righteous character, who you really are. The second word there, the word godliness, is more a conduct word. If, if righteousness is a character word, um, the word godliness is a word that refers to how you actually live out that character, what you do with your life, the choices that you make, decisions that you make. Are you being a good person? You can have good intentions. The road to hell is paved with those. But to be someone who really does what's right, this is kind of the idea of what Jesus was saying in Matthew in the Sermon on the Mount when he said, let your light so shine before men that they will see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. The people would watch the way you live and be touched by the way that you do it, the decisions that you make on a daily basis. And again, this may be sacrificial in terms of your own personal promotion, but he's saying, no, seek to do what's right. Have that be what you're chasing. Be ambitious in developing your character. Be ambitious in developing your conduct in a way that it will be exemplary and, and a credit to God and not just to you. Now, none of us are perfect. And we all have certain ideas of what we want to be and we'll always fall short of those until we get to heaven. There are some people who seem to think they've got it together, but they're deluded and deceived. Um, the truth is we're all struggling. But what he's talking about here is your pursuit. Now, if you don't even want to treat people fairly, if you don't want to be a man or woman of integrity, if you don't want to do the right thing, I guarantee you're never going to do it. 
It's just not going to happen. And so this he's talking about is what we're aspiring to. What we set before us as, that's what I want to be when I grow up. That's how I want to live. Again, a lot of times you'll slip and fall and fail, and it's not going to work out the way you, you intend. And that's where grace comes in. We have this incredible insurance policy that we start over with God every second when we just admit that he's right and we're wrong. But he's laying this foundation here and asking us, if you really want to be different, if you really want to provide an alternative lifestyle, are you even trying to do what's right? Do you even want to know what's right? So often when people will come in and and need counseling or help, um, they will say, I really need to know what God's will is. And in reality, they already know what God's will is. What they're hoping is that you'll give them a loophole so they don't have to do what God wants them to do. And so the big issue for all of us is to back up before we even know what issue we're talking about and say, do you even want to do what's right? Do you even want to have integrity? If you thought that your character was on the line, what would you do? How would you want to live? Now again, this is a radical departure in a world whereby pragmatism rules whereby I do what's going to work out best for me, and I try not to think about how it affects others. But understand this, looking out for yourself and buying more things and, and fixing yourself up more and, and puffing yourself and, and bragging on yourself and, and building yourself up, that will never satisfy you. If you haven't figured that out yet, you're probably not really ready to walk with Jesus. Because the first thing you need to do to come to him is to acknowledge, you know what, when I try to help myself, it just doesn't work. And I have not found satisfaction, and therefore I'm, looking, I'm open to options. I'm looking for an alternative. When you come to that point, the alternative is going to start with your integrity and righteousness and being fair and treating people equally and, and then to actually make decisions that flow forth from that value and then he further describes this alternative life as a life of faith. And that word there is a word that means to be faithful or to be dependable. Can people count on you? Do you even want to be a person that people can count on? Or would you rather live the kind of life where you're weaseling around trying to stay out of things and you're hoping when somebody needs help they don't think about you to help them? Because you'd just rather seem helpless. <laughs> I know if you know, if you've spent a bunch of time working on computers, you've learned a lot. And you hate it when people start saying that, oh, this person's a computer genius. They know everything. Because then you're going to get asked to help. Because there's all kinds of people asking for help. They really aren't that interested in paying for it because they think it's easy for you because you're smart and they're not. And they think that learning computers is just something that happens magically, not by making a lot of mistakes. So when their computer crashes and it's just that blue screen of death, <laughs> they're going to call you. Now, if you've used computers for any length of time, you know what to do with the blue screen of death. You get a Macintosh, doesn't happen. But, <laughs> but still, you go back to, oh yeah, 
what did I do when I was stupid and was still using a Windows-based computer? How did I fix that problem? Let's see, control, alternate, delete. Maybe that'll do it. Replace all your drivers. Reinstall Windows. Do it, you know, and you try to figure it out. So, so what you tend to do is to just go, I don't even want people to know that I know stuff. Because if I know stuff, it means people want my help. Well, faithfulness means, you know what? I want to be there for people. I, I want to be available. And even though sometimes it may be unpleasant, if I learn things, I guess it's not just for me. There are some people who, if they say they're going to be somewhere, they're there. You can count on it. There are other people that if they say they're going to be there, you can absolutely count on them not being there. They're, that's the only thing you can count on. Who do you know that you can really count on? Who do you know that will show up? And, and the, that's going to happen. That's a faithful person. That's what faithfulness is. Sometimes faithfulness is boring compared to charisma. There are some people who are just, when they show up, it's great. Life of the party. But you never know if they're going to show up or not. And then there's that one person who just always shows up. As your life goes on, you come to appreciate more and more faithfulness. Oh, very few people got married because they thought they found a really faithful person. No, usually, you know, we're attracted to people because of other traits. You know, they're, they look nice or they're funny or, you know, they're, they like you, um, you know, or act like they do. And so, wow, you know, it's just, I'm so drawn to this person. But anyone who's ever been in a relationship where you were hurt, anyone who's ever been in a long relationship where you've grown together, tell me that when the final analysis that faithfulness isn't more important than a whole lot of other traits that seemed important at the time. If you're doing business with someone, ultimately, you'd rather have someone who you can count on. Being able to count on someone is something that we should aspire to be that kind of person. I want to be somebody who shows up consistently. And the only way I know of for faithfulness to happen is discipline. It doesn't happen automatically. No one is just naturally faithful. Faithful people just get up whether they feel like it or not. Faithful people tell you they'll help you with something, and so they do it even though they may... They, they learn to play with pain. They, there are some people who... You know, it's funny. You look at guys who have been successful in sports, and there are some people who have the most incredible amount of talent and yet they never learn to play with pain. And so they're a flash in the pan. Ultimately, what happens to most of these guys is they end up being announcers when they're in their late 20s because they just, you know, oh, too much pain. Then you see a guy like Brett Favre who started, uh, I don't know, 300 games in a row in the NFL. You think he doesn't hurt? He's 40 years old. Come on, when you get 40, you hurt when you wake up in the morning. You don't have to get hit by a 350-pound lineman. But the guy's still showing up. The one thing you can count on about Brett Favre is at the end of the season, if he says he's going to retire, he won't. Because <laughs> the guy doesn't know how to quit. Well, that's what 
a Christian ought to be. Somebody who just doesn't know when to quit, who will always be there, who at the end of the day is the last one to turn out the lights when they leave. Somebody who isn't looking out for themselves, but they're willing to serve in whatever way they possibly can. Faithfulness. Yeah, that's rare nowadays. It really is. Most people are pathetically unfaithful. But following Jesus Christ means you go, I want to be that. I really want to be consistent. I want to be faithful. In my fellowship, in attendance at church, in serving God, in my prayer life, in my devotional life, at my work, in my relationships with my friends and with my family, and in every way, I, I'm chasing after faithfulness. Oh, I want to be known for that. The next word that he describes in this alternative lifestyle is love. Love, that word agape in the Greek, that refers to just that you care about others more than you care about yourself. That you're willing to give to others. Now, love at its essence is really only love when the object of the love isn't acting very loving. You know, well, the Bible described it, Paul described it in Romans this way. Here's how we know love. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We wouldn't have known love unless he loved us when we were just as ugly as could be. And we still know his love and that he continues to love us when we're ugly. Anyone can love someone who's loving back to them. Anyone can go, oh, when you're nice to me, I'm nice to you. Aren't we loving? No, we aren't. Anyone can love a newborn baby when it's lying there cooing at you. <laughs> loving that baby when they're screaming in the middle of the night. It takes a little different degree of love. And into all of our lives, God brings a lot of opportunities for us to love. That person that comes into your life or that person at your work who's annoying, that person in your family that just always seems to say the wrong thing or they hate you sometimes and they even tell you that, that person that you know who just grates on you, what are you going to do then? Because you'll never know if you are a loving person at all until someone acts unloving toward you and you have a chance to show whether or not you're going to live a life of love. God gives us those opportunities to really love. And the decision to be a loving person is a decision that says, I am going to do life d differently than most people. There will be people who pretend to love you only to get what they want. But are you the type of person who will love someone that you can't get anything out of? Do you want to be that kind of person? Are you chasing that? The next word that he has here, patience. Patience means to, to hang in there when the going gets tough. Patience means to not quit, similar to faithfulness, really. But patience implies some suffering. It implies difficulty. And again, so many opportunities come into our lives to be patient, and we hate them. We avoid them at all costs. I, I was thinking about this, I, I think it was yesterday or the day before. I'm driving along, and I'm in a hurry. Oh, it was Friday because I was going to a funeral, and and I'm like, ooh, I need to get there on time. And I was going down El Toro Road, which is a road 
from hell. And <laughs> I, there's a signal up ahead, and I can tell it's about to turn, but there's plenty of time for the car in front of me and me to get through it. So I'm going, this is going to be cool. I'm still looking good. So I start to accelerate, and the light turns yellow, and the car in front of me just slams on their brakes and stops. It's a Laguna Woods kind of driving disease. <laughs> but, <laughs> sorry. And so I had to slam on my brakes, and I had to stop too, and I had to waste like 45 seconds of my life sitting there going, ooh, why? I should have honked, I should have swerved and gone around them, I should have just pushed her right through the <laughs> intersection, you know. And, but the one thought that didn't come into my mind at first was, here's a great opportunity for me to show whether I'm patient or not. I did think of that later. <laughs> Hated it. But how many times in our lives do things not go our way? Now, remember, the way the world is doing it is, let's make it go my way as much as I can, and then I'll be satisfied. And life doesn't cooperate, and you're never satisfied. But doing things God's way is to say, opportunities are going to come into my life, and I'm going to welcome them, opportunities for me to demonstrate patience. And so when that happens, I go, this is so cool. I'm late. I need to learn to leave earlier. And, but I'll probably, it'll probably be okay, and they can't start without me. And, and I'm just going to enjoy sitting here, you know, looking at this intersection that inexplicably has two Del Tacos at one intersection. I, and, but it's like, yeah. And was that you? No. But it's an opportunity. Some of you have kids that God has blessed you with who are there to teach you patience. <laughs> How are you doing with that? <laughs> How are you handling that? Some of you were blessed with a spouse that God caused you to, to somehow believe that they were something that they really aren't, and now you're living with it. And, and they do things that seem to be designed deliberately to test your patience. How do, you, how do you deal with that? What we ought to do is to say, I'm so thankful for a chance to show that I'm getting more patient. In fact, if I'm, if I'm pursuing patience, then I'm wanting to be tested. I'm wanting to be slowed down. I'm wanting to be delayed and inconvenienced because I'm going, you know, if the trial of your faith works patience, I want patience. I want to be that person who just says, hey, no problem, I can wait. I'll suffer, I'll deal with some difficulty right now. But he goes, no, impatience is never the path to contentment. Patience is part of the path to contentment. And the only way to get that is to not get things your way all the time. And then to see what God wants to do in your life as a result. And finally, gentleness, he puts there. The word gentleness refers to someone who has strength under control. Um, you know, gentleness isn't just somebody who's so weak they can't do anything about it. Gentleness is someone who has enough strength that they feel secure in who they are 
And so therefore, they don't have to push anybody around. Bullies are always insecure people. People who are mean to other people, it's always based on their insecurity. They don't think they're good enough. And so they need to stick up for themselves. They think no one else will stick up for them. So they push their way around. They push their way to get to the top. There are some people who are so incredibly materially successful, and yet you look at them and think, how in the world could you be so insecure? There's one guy who owns a lot of real estate in New York, and he names everything after him. <laughs> and you know who he is, bad comb over. And, <laughs> and it's like, you watch him even on his own TV show, and you think, how could you be so insecure? You've accomplished plenty. How, why can't you enjoy life at all? You're, you seem like one of the most incontent people I know. Yeah, exactly. No gentleness. You're fired. Nothing. It's just... <laughs> but somebody who's really strong, you can see it partly in the way they don't have to act strong. Watch a really strong man with their little baby, and you see gentleness. It's like they're not grabbing the baby and going, and roughing it up and seeing how high they can throw it and things. No, you know, it's so touching to see a, a big, strong dad who's always acting really tough, and there they are with their child just being gentle. And as your children get older, they can hurt you um, in a lot of different ways, and you don't retaliate. They, kids... Boy, when they grab the hair on your chest or when, you know, it hurts and you just feel like slapping them. If somebody else, if somebody else did that to you, you would, but you don't do that with a baby. When they become toddlers, they can hit you in very vulnerable places and you, you, just, you don't just, you know, give them a sidekick to the head and knock them out. It's just, no, gentleness is, I am so strong that you don't threaten me. I'm going to be okay. I'll go ahead. You can take a couple shots. Biggest, the biggest wimps in the world are men who, who beat up women. It's just so, such a cowardly, disgusting thing. There's something horribly wrong with a man who thinks they have to use their superior strength. As far as that goes, their economic leverage or their wit or whatever to overpower a woman. That's just, it just shows what a, what a punk you are to do that. Gentleness is the exact opposite. It's, like, it's saying to people, you know what? Go ahead and take a shot if it makes you feel better. Go ahead and say a few things, hurtful things to me, and I'll be okay. I'll be able to deal with it. And that's this kind of gentleness. It's the gentleness that Jesus had when they began to beat him and spit in his face, and he knew he could just look at them and make everybody fly against the wall or melt or die or go to hell for eternity but he was just gentle with them. He had a job to do, and he understood that. Gentleness is, is a part of a choice that we make, that I am not going to get what I want by bowling everyone over who's weaker than I am and blindsiding those who are stronger than I am. I can trust that God's going to give me what he wants me to have, and you know what? Like he said earlier in the chapter, I've got food and clothes. I'm fine. I'm taken care of. I'm going to find contentment in where I am. I'm not going to live with this, this just absolute necessity to get more.
And so he lays out these things and says, this is the alternative lifestyle I'm giving you. Now, the alternative lifestyle comes from a different perspective, an eternal perspective. Look at verse 12. Fight the good fight of faith. Lay hold on eternal life to which you were also called and have confessed the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Fight the good fight. You're always going to be fighting. The question is, are you going to fight bad fights, stupid fights, or are you going to fight the correct fights, the right fights? Oh, life is a struggle. If you're going to be patient, you're going to be fighting. If you're going to be loving, that's a battle too. But Paul tells us, you know, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. We're not fighting against people. It's those spiritual powers that are waging battle over our soul that we do battle with. So fight the good fight, and the good fight in this case is laying hold on eternal life. In other words, getting the perspective of eternity. In other words, what lasts? How about not consuming yourself with things that are temporary and not obsessing yourself with things that don't matter in light of heaven, in light of eternity? Most of our lives are wasted on temporary things. And he says, if you're going to live this different lifestyle, you've got to get a grip on eternity. You have to understand, we last forever. People last forever. God has designed us that way. Eternity is a long time. So stop getting all sidetracked on things that don't last. Don't fight your battles for things that have already happened, for instance. Or don't sacrifice a relationship with someone because you're arguing over some of your stuff. Lay hold on eternal life. Get that eternal perspective and you'll find yourself living that alternative lifestyle in a much more effective way. So he describes, and our time is up, but I'll finish anyway, just quickly. You've got the alternative lifestyle, pursuing righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, and gentleness. You have the perspective, it's the eternal perspective. And you've confessed that, he says in verse 12. This is what you say you believe, it's just a question of, are you going to believe what you say you believe? Are you going to live it? You've made the confession, you've gone, yeah, I'm a Christian. Now, are you really going to do that? That means having an eternal perspective. But then he also gives us the example. And in verse 13, he says, I urge you in the sight of God, who gives life to all things, and Jesus, and before Jesus Christ, who witnessed the good confession before Pontius Pilate, that you keep this commandment without spot, blameless, until the Lord Jesus Christ's appearing. He doesn't just tell us to live in a way that we don't know what it looks like, because we have the example of Jesus. Another way of describing this alternative lifestyle is just to say, do what Jesus would do. Be the way he was. You have confessed Jesus. Now, how about looking at what he confessed? And this is really a trip, this part. And, and it's an interesting choice of words, and I had never really thought about it too much before, and it just hit me studying it this week. Notice that when he talks about the example of Jesus, he says that Jesus witnessed the good confession before Pontius Pilate. Verse 13. And I'd never thought about that before, but 
How did Jesus make a confession before Pontius Pilate? I can see how he lived his life, and he's a great example to us in a lot of ways, but when Paul is saying where Jesus was an example, look at the instance that he chose. The witness before Pontius Pilate. You remember what Jesus said before Pontius Pilate? He could have said a lot of things. Could have argued, could have made a big deal about it. He could have killed Pontius Pilate right there. But what Jesus did, Pontius asked him, Pilate asked him, you know, are you really the Messiah? Are you the, are you the Son of God? And he just said, you said it. And then after that, he's like, come on, you got to say more. You got to defend yourself. What are you going to? And it said, over and over, it said, Jesus was silent. He didn't utter a word. A witness by being silent? Exactly. And in so many cases, how we could learn from that example. I was going to, in one of these days, I'm going to preach a message on this passage, and I'm just going to call it Shut Up. Because (laughs) the most powerful example Jesus had was when he didn't speak, when he could have. And that's what Paul points at here. There's your example, Jesus silently. Now, a lot of times, if we're going to be righteous, we'd be a lot more righteous if we just shut up. We would be a lot more godly if we'd shut up. Faithfulness would come easier if we would shut up. We would be more loving if we would shut up. We would be more patient by shutting up. And gentleness would come more natural if we just keep our mouth shut. When we open our mouths so often, it completely destroys that lifestyle that we're claiming we want to live. Our, our tongue is so destructive and what we say is so bad. It's, the Bible's full of exhortations. Proverbs has a lot of them about just shut up. And so Jesus is seen as an example who because of his character, because of his eternal perspective, he just didn't have to say anything. And that was the most powerful witness he could have had. And I think for many of us, instead of thinking Okay, then, I want to be an example. What should I say? How about starting with, what should you not say? How about starting with saying a little less? And when you feel like saying it, don't. We all know people who don't say much, and usually we have respect for them. You don't even necessarily know what's going on in their head, but shutting up is a good start. You feel like saying it, don't say it right away. Now, obviously, there's a time to speak, and Jesus spoke plenty of times, but when he was under attack, he didn't. And we will earn the right to speak if we will develop the ability to not speak sometimes so quickly. Takes pain, takes patience, takes love, takes gentleness, but but to not speak is the witness that Jesus leaves us. So we have the lifestyle righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, gentleness. We have the perspective, the perspective of eternity and what lasts longer than the stuff that we worry about. We have the example, Jesus Christ himself, who's saying, I'm showing you how to live. If you do it more like me, you'll find contentment. You'll be satisfied. You'll feel much more the way you're designed to feel if you'd learn to do this. And then finally, we see the authority, and this is interesting, as it says, 
it talks about um, blameless until our Lord Jesus Christ's appearing, which he will manifest in his own time. Who? He who is the blessed and only potentate, a ruler, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, dwelling in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see, to whom be honor and everlasting power. Amen. This great benediction. Who's it talking about? Well, if it's, if it's referring to Jesus himself in all this section, it wouldn't really make sense because it says nobody's seen him, nobody will see him. He dwells in unapproachable light. It has to be referring to God the Father here, which is who, and he is the one who will reveal Jesus Christ when he returns at his epiphany, which is the Greek word here for appearance. Now, that sounds fine. Most people wouldn't quarrel with that too much, except there's an interesting thing here, and really quickly, turn over to Revelation chapter 17. Revelation chapter 17 and verse 14. It's talking about this ruler and he comes on the scene and he says as this, as this evil beast is trying to attack, it says in verse 14, these will make war with the lamb and the lamb will overcome them Who's the Lamb, of course? The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It's Jesus. The Lamb will overcome them, for he is Lord of lords and King of kings, and those who are with him are called chosen and faithful. Now turn over a couple more pages to Revelation chapter 19. And it's talking about Jesus when he comes back on a white horse, making war against the enemy. And in verse 16... He has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Now back in 1 Timothy 6, what does that have to do with anything? 1 Timothy 6 says clearly that God the Father who will reveal Jesus Christ is the only potentate, the only King and Kings and Lord of Lords. He alone <laughs> has immortality. So what does that mean? No man has seen him? <laughs> yeah. No man has seen the Father. John chapter 1 tells us that. But now you find out the King and Kings and Lord of Lords, the Father, that Jesus Christ is the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So does that mean Jesus is the Father? No, because the Father can't be seen. Jesus is seen, and yet there is only one God. There can't be three gods because then it couldn't be said that he is the only one. It'd be he's one of three. So there's one God, and Jesus Christ, the King of kings and Lord of lords, is God. And God the Father, who no one has seen, is God. That's mysterious, but he's the boss. He's in charge. And so if that's what he says about himself, I believe it. He doesn't beat around the bush about it at all. And that is the authority under which we are told to live our alternative life. And so we look at it and see, you know, you know, you live your life 
After a while, you figure out that just trying to get more stuff, trying to get more successful, it'll never satisfy you. So what do we do instead? We begin to pursue these character qualities that he talks about. We begin to want the right things in our life. And as we do that and gain an eternal perspective and look at the example of Jesus Christ and we discover God in his totality. Or you can do it backwards. When you realize that God is in charge, that he is the King of kings and Lord of lords, and you submit to him, then you certainly want to look at the example that he set. And in that example, we, we then also come to the point where we realize that eternity matters a lot more than the stuff we've been worrying about. And if, in fact, eternity matters, I want my life to reflect and to pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, and gentleness. That's the other way of doing it. That's another way that we can live our lives according to God and his word. And if you've, if you've tried to do it the other way, you realize it doesn't work. If you've come to the point where you've been living it on your own and chasing after things that end up dematerializing before your eyes, and now you want an option, here it is. Giving your life to Jesus Christ. If you're here today and, and you're done with the alternative and now you want a real alternative, another option, I'd really encourage you today to give your life to Jesus after the service, after the last song. There'll be people down here in the front and they'll pray for people for any reason that you need prayer for, but they'd love to talk to somebody who says, okay, I'm done. I really want to start over. I want to put my faith in Jesus Christ who died for me and rose from the dead. If you haven't done that, that's the greatest need that you have in your life. You will never be satisfied until you start there. But for all of us, once we start there, let's live it. Let's really get into this lifestyle. Let's make sure we're pursuing the right things and following that example and keeping that eternal perspective and submitting ourselves, bowing our knee to the King of kings and Lord of lords. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for giving us an option, not just come and telling us that life stinks, but coming and showing us it doesn't have to. So Lord, help us to trust you. Help us to get jaded enough with not trusting you that we get sick of that and we begin to really live our lives for you, following after your example, living from your perspective. Help us, Lord. If there's somebody here who doesn't know you, draw them to yourself right now. Let them start over. Thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.